Today's reading is from John 21, verses 1 to 14. Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. And it's on the screen too. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, possessed by love divine, let that be our testimony. Lord, may these words be filled with love for your people. Lord, direct us, help us, be with us, we pray. In one sense, in terms of through Easter and uh, on to Pentecost and the great series we've had in the Holy Spirit, um, you might say, Charles, you're going backwards because I'm taking us back to the third appearance. Um, the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What strange times they must have been. We say it so easily. No one had ever been raised from the dead. 
and this bunch of women and men have been privileged to be a part of the greatest moment until he comes in glory that has ever taken place. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139, in a very real sense, if you can use your imaginations, captures just what's happening in that moment for the disciples, as they do not realize, but soon will. Peter says, I'm going out to fish. They're returning to familiar waters. I wonder how long it was since they'd actually gathered their tackle and their boat got things ready. I wonder if they'd done it at all in the three years they'd been with Jesus. But let's just track back a moment and remember the very first call um, as Jesus comes to them, as he takes them forward in the mission of God that's been given to him. And of course we read of John uh, as he writes of their response. At once they left their nets and followed him. The Sea of Tiberias, a.k.a. the Sea of Galilee. But now they're by the sea once more. We don't know if they're on this side of the sea or they've settled on the far side of the sea, Psalm 139. But you get the point. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. A scripture deep in uh, the story of uh, Israel. So on this particular moment, on this shore, after those resurrection appearances, now he comes again by the sea. He comes to seek them out. Lord, you have searched for me and you know me as is the same for each of us this morning always, wherever we go. The thing about coming to the scriptures is a dangerous thing, as we know. It's powerful, it's challenging, it's life-giving. They are the lively oracles of God. And Chris last week spoke to us about uh, the Word. And uh, although we won't be here next week, I'm really looking forward to hear some of the outworking of that. That we'd be not just hearers or lookers of the Word, but doers of the same. But as we read scripture, something is happening. There's a reciprocity. As we read scripture, so actually the greater truth is that scripture is reading you and me. That is not something to alarm us or frighten us. Even though the Lord knows all of our inward thoughts and our unique ways and habits, yes, the good ones, and yes, the less good ones, those we try to hide, even from ourselves sometimes, in dark places. He is with us, but he is always, always for us. And he wants our presence close to himself as we find ourselves in his. So the disciples are going to discover that once again, they cannot escape that great and loving presence and his actually all-knowing heart. But fear not, always his word to us. His call remains as it does for them. So, back to 139, Psalm 139. If I say, surely the dark will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, 
for darkness is as light to you. Maybe during the week you might get into Psalm 139 and just read it and then reread it again. Well, to give him his full title, Ludwig Philipp Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer, who many of us will remember hearing about, a great figure in the Christian story. He came from the border between France and Germany. He was Alsatian, Alsace-Lorraine, um, just on the borders of Germany. It's a part of the world which has switched from uh, different uh, uh, nations over the years. He was a Lutheran pastor, a minister, and he was a theologian. Now, whether you've read or know or agree with some, and maybe some not of his theology, Schweitzer challenged the way that both the secular and the traditional Christian world were getting into confused waters about the way we can know and actually experience Jesus and what the Gospels are, how reliable they are. And some people were getting pretty dismissive of what the Scriptures were um, for us and how far they could be trusted. But Schweitzer, responding to the call again into his life, he'd given up two brilliant careers, one as a gifted writer, one as a theologian. And knowing the call of God, uh, he was actually an accomplished musician, an organist, uh, he'd given up that to respond to a call to go to the peoples of Africa. And he trained again as a medical doctor. He was... Uh, born in the late 1870s sort of and he was eventually awarded a Nobel Prize for his work in Africa in 1952 and in the year of coronation he received that which was of no interest to him. But he wrote an amazing book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, I know Ken knows it. <laughs> um, he wrote of what it means to hear and respond to the call of Jesus, to lay aside what he was doing to do what was better. And this is what he wrote, which ties in with the passage that Joe read. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those disciples who at first knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow me. And he sets us to the tasks which he has for us in his spirit to fulfill in our day. He commands, he sends, he breathes the Holy Spirit. And to those who obey him, whether they be wise, like all of you, or simple, like me, because I'm a good Devonian, all right? Strong in the arm and thick in the head. The wise and the simple. He will reveal himself in the toils, the challenges, the conflicts, and yes, at times, the sufferings that we are called and privileged to share, which they shall pass through, as they already have to an extent, but as their uh, ministry continues, they will share in the fellowship of his sufferings, as all the writers of the New Testament make abundantly plain. They will learn in their own experience that he is not the stranger on the shore, but of who he is. Christian, in a minute, I'm going to want you to play just a few, not yet, but I'll go like that, okay? In a minute, I'll go like that. So, this passage, let it speak to us in the mission that Jesus calls us to again, and when we forget and go another direction, calls us back into again with amazing patience. The disciples had, yes, gone back to their usual fishing, 
the way they knew best. Well, it was a remarkable time. Let's face it. Let's have some uh, mercy over their hearts. Jesus had appeared to them in the upper room. And now they're in a point of not knowing perhaps what they should do next. And so they'd start to go back to what they did know. Even though he'd appeared to them twice before <coughs> in the upper room saying, Shalom, Shalom, peace be with you. And the second time with Thomas showing himself again and showing his hands and his side, the wounded side of Christ. He not reprimanded them, bullied them or told them off. But again, he'd co-missioned them, joined him into the mission of the Father. Both times he'd spoken of their future in his ongoing mission as he speaks to us again today. And he still will when we go backwards. But he breathed his spirit on them. He began to share with them the promise of the Father. And think of the three sessions that Chris spoke on the spirit. Through his breath he started to bring the things of the kingdom ever more alive in them. As the Father has sent me, I, I am, great title of the Lord, I am is sending you. I am sending you. But in this passage we've read, they are now found actually moving backwards into safety. Or at least, at the least, they're stuck and don't know what to do. They are confused. But they not, are they, seeking the way forward. And this is the simple question. I know you won't remember most of what I've spoken. There's so much in your hearts and lives. I wonder what you go back to. What churches go back to when we, when they are confused. When we find ourselves moving back from the things to which we've been called. So I ask of you and of myself, and I've been pondering it for a few weeks really, what's the usual thing that you uh, feel in control in? What's your known and preferred activity that you tend to drift back to when you're not going forward? What is your busyness? What is your business? Can we just have that tune for a moment? Jesus is the stranger on the shore. I remember when I first sort of saw that connection, that beautiful bit of music which so many people are touched with. Whenever I have the opportunity, I say, there was one day, a time, when Christ had risen from the dead and his disciples had lost sight of that. And they'd gone fishing on the beach just down there at Brixham or Paynton. And when they came in from a very, very hard night, they caught nothing. 
there was an enigmatic figure. He comes to us as one unknown, by the lakeside, as of old. It makes a connection for them to think about. It's a very mellow, indwelling peace. Whilst Jesus goes forward, they're going backwards. But again, I ask of you, what do you go back to? Have you got a clear sense of what is your place or activity, where at least you feel at home, comfortable, or perhaps safe? And that's what I want you to be asking over these next few days. What are your usual habits? This is what I do. Well, John, the Gospel writer, in all his brilliance, in all the Holy Spirit-filled inspiration, uses metaphors of darkness and light. And of course, so does the psalmist. But wonderfully in this passage as elsewhere. Now, in this moment, after that night, there has been real physical darkness. And there is in our lives on a daily routine. But there's also the darkness of our ways, and you know what that means. There is the light of dawn, when things suddenly become clearer again, the light that dawns in us. So the disciples, yes, go out to fish. Note, as John says, at night. All night. They know their fishing techniques. I've got some photographs I showed somebody the other night on my phone. I went fishing recently. I actually caught something. If you want to see that, ask me afterwards. But they know their fishing techniques. It's too bright too light in the fullness of the sun to catch fish during the day. Why? Because fish run deep in the full scorching sunlight. Yes, they do know their trade. Lord, we know what to do. Thank you very much. And I expect you know your trade or your particular way which you tend to be an expert at and go back to. Um, it could be your work, of course, but it could be the thing or things you tend to major on in your inner habits. Maybe it's too much car cleaning, guys. Maybe, guys, it's too much housework, if only if. <laughs> you get the point. I wonder what it is that for, before all things you will go back and major upon. Boy, do those fishermen work hard in the darkness of the night. They get right into it. But Jesus gently seeks them out. He searches for them again. Lord, you have searched me. Lord, you have searched for me. And you know me. You know what I'm up to. He takes the initiative. He comes to them. He comes to you. And he can see, which is why one of the old confessions is that we might not cloak or dissemble our sins before God. There's no point, but we do. He actually knows, which is why we can come without fear, because he still calls. He can see so clearly what's going on in there, the fishermen's innermost thoughts and their actions. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And note, it's early in the morning, as the sun gets up, with marvellous dawn, fresh light, that Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realise it was Jesus. Not at least until the miraculous catch of fish. Yes, caught in the daylight. It's just not right. Just when it should have been impossible to catch. Jesus has deep understanding. 
deep knowledge, deep insight. Now in this moment, there is a gift of knowledge. Chris has been talking about some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So knowledge just not of their minds and what's going on, their inner thoughts, but actually knowledge of the created order, the natural world. And he can see where those elusive fish are. It's a gift of knowledge. It's something divine granted to him at that moment. Remember one of the old titles given by Hagar to God, El Roy, the God who sees, who sees me, who sees you, who sees it all. Earlier in his gospel account, Jesus says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Later, when Judas goes out from that last supper, from the light of Christ, there's a wonderful painting in the National Gallery where the light shines as Christ has his disciples around him. It's wonderful to see. Judas goes out from the light of Christ on that fateful night of betrayal. John, John simply puts it, it's one of the other shorter sentences in the Bible, and it was night. Two meanings. You know what metaphor is. Darkness was coming upon the world as the cross was before Jesus. It was a dark time of the, of, the, of the 24 hours. So it's darkness in the physical, but also in the spiritual. And for Judas, in the emotional, the psychological. And John always uses words with this two uh, sorts of meanings, metaphorically. The literal, what it really is, but the deeper meaning behind it. And so for you and me, the Lord comes to us now. He will find us even when we are just too busy with our own agenda, our own skill set to the fore. What is yours? What do you tend to use more than relying upon the Lord of your skills, your gifts, your busyness, your activities, your hobbies? They're all great things, don't get me wrong. Schweitzer was busy being a brilliant theologian in his theological studies before allowing the Lord's call and the grace for him to lay it all aside, to start going forwards into what the Lord had called him. Clearly, Schweitzer had many experiences of the Lord, even as a very young man. He wrote that great book when he was only just 30, 1906, I think, something like that. Well, for us, and perhaps for churches, when direction has been lost, or fear has prevented the call that's being made to us now to the new future. We can fall back into old ways of being church, can't we? Or old ways of doing our lives, not relying on the Lord. In busyness that can become just too much. Just like the fishermen. Nobody can doubt their efforts. They'd worked hard all night. Yet even fishing through that long season, they caught nothing. There was no fruit. And it's true in our individual lives and our use of time. But as they accept his invitation, they must have been so embarrassed. Fishermen also hate other people catching more than them. <laughs> Their invitation to a meal. It's then that they see that fire that Jesus already lit on the beach. My Greek pronunciation will be wrong, but the Greek word for the coals which Jesus has lit is anthrakite from which we get the word anthracite. And you remember when Chris has preached before on this passage in a different word to us, 
For Peter, it is a stark reminder of his first betrayal. How he'd gone backwards at that moment. Do you remember? He was there for the Lord and he'd gone backwards. Things had gone badly wrong. And so now just the smell of the coals. Can you imagine? Not only the embarrassment of not having caught fish, but the reminder of his stepping back in betrayal. Oh, the wisdom of God. Oh, the subtlety of God. Wow. But there is a costly ministry still ahead for Peter. And Jesus wants him with him and in it. He must first be reinstated, which is in the next part of the gospel. But he invites them to bring some of the miraculous catch, even though there are already fish on the fire, which is a, a detail I always find interesting. He's already caught. And once more he feeds them, strengthens them. He cares they've been out fishing all night. He cares that you've poured yourself out in a lot of hard work, which just seems to have got nowhere. Maybe in a relationship, maybe at work, maybe because you're refusing to hear him say, stop, you've come to the end of that chapter. There is a new future. Ask the Lord to show you what you're caught up in to such an extent that you can't see what's ahead. The Lord will nurture who is the way, the truth and the life. So I'm going to finish with a very short testimony. I might have shared it before. Apologies. Um, when I was over at St. John's, Joe and I lived there for a number of years, I'd got to a season in the life of the church where I was really stuck, so stuck. And I decided to um, go, I was part of what we call the New Wine Network of churches. It majors very much on the Word, preaching, the gifts of the Spirit, and of course the mission of God. And so many other things as well, worship and of course everything. And there was a new wine prayer meeting on a Friday morning, which was our sort of day off, Joe and I. So we dropped the kids off at school and went down to it. But we had to get back in a certain time to collect them from school. We wanted to walk our huge deerhound dog on Dartmoor quick. We wanted to pack it all in on one day and still be back by 3.15. Um, so when the talk came to an end at about 12, um, John Cole, who was the sort of leader of the New Wine movement then, his wife, Anne, uh, they offered prayer ministry. Now, because we needed to get out pretty fast, we went straight up to the front, and so we, wouldn't, we couldn't queue behind 50 people, because we really knew that there was this, I did, in me, there was a stuckness and a dryness. Um, I'd worked hard, and it had come to the point where I didn't know quite what, and you tend to just to fall back. Well, that night, Sorry, that day as she prayed for me, she spoke words of knowledge quite clearly. She'd never met or seen me before. And at the end of it, she said, I saw you, that's me, in a dream last night. And she then went on to say further things about my life, which no human could have told her. And it was quite remarkable. And she'd been up on the moor, staying in a small cottage where there's no TV signal. I think I've told you the story, actually. And um, at the end, she says, and the Lord says, you'll understand the riddle of the heron. So we came home. I was still in a very dry place. But what happened was a friend of mine whose son was here in the congregation three or four weeks ago, Aaron, who comes from Secunderabad in India. And his father was a great man of God, and I'd been out with him on mission previously into small tribal villages 
He then contacted me, this was about two years on from my first visit to India, and he said, Chaz, I'd like you to come out and to lead a pastor's conference. Well, that's crazy. I was about the most sort of stuck pastor I knew. And uh, it was a huge challenge, but I decided after quite a period of time and reflection and the preparation for this mission, I would go. And we went out into remote parts of, West, of eastern India where that tsunami had once famously come in. And we preached through two interpreters. Pastor Paul was one, and then down through two others into local dialects, into people who had nothing but had the faith, huge faith. They had no reliance on medical people, resources, doctors, anything. Very little work, very little money. But they knew that they had to respond. And they did. So when we prayed for people, remarkable things happened. I always think what Jesus said, your faith is, is definitely their faith through which God moved. And we were just privileged to be a part of releasing uh, that blessing unto them. And then we came back to Hyderabad, huge, huge teaming, millions and millions of people. India is just overtaking China as the largest population in the world. 1.4 billion people. And Hyderabad is one of the big 17 conurbations. And Paul, Pastor Paul, took me on the back of his motorbike. He weighed about eight stone, I weighed about 16. So we <laughs> drove like this. And he said, come down here a minute, I want to show you the street people. Which, for those of you who feared going to India because you couldn't be able to bear the poverty, you would. Um, and his heart had been deeply stirred for years. He wanted to build a home for street kids who were living on the streets. And he asked me if I would partner him in it. And when we came back, we did some fundraising. And as I looked around, there was this huge, sort of stinking sort of lake. It really was full of rubbish. And there were, you know that little bird, the little egret that's been coming to our country over the last few years and now resides here? It's like a little white bird like this with a long beak and it goes in the rivers. And I said to him, I said, Paul, look at all those egrets over there. Now, remember back, she said to me, you will understand the riddle of the heron. And he said to me, brother, they are not egrets, they are herons. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit just rose from my toes right up through me, and I knew that that's what God was preparing for me to be a part of in that part of our life and church fellowship. The stature of waiting. I thought about heron for ages when I came back from that prayer meeting in Plymouth, for ages, and I'm a bird spotter, you know, <laughs> and I know a thing or two about herons, and I, I looked at the pictures of the herons, and of course in the bird book they're all just like standing like that, but then I opened a book in which they were actually, it was like that, and I remembered that somebody had said to me, herons don't just wait for fish, like, the fish will come along sometime, they're active in their waiting, it's active waiting. And I began to wait on the Lord, because I knew he was speaking to me, but I didn't know what it was going to be. But when I saw the herons, well, I thought they were egrets, and he said, brother, they are herons, I knew that I'd been waiting. Because the Lord is my portion, I will wait on him. But, frustratingly, the Lord is in no hurry. As our lives move forward... He's perhaps answering a prayer that you prayed 25 years ago today. And maybe he is going to release something in you today, this week, that you've longed for, longed for. And this is his moment for you. And this church, those of you who have been praying for this church over the years, 
There is a new movement of the Spirit, and God is calling you, this us, this people, to what is ahead. And it seems to be remarkably wonderfully that under the leadership that Chris, with Nick and you, the leaders of the church, are overseeing, that there is an amazing fringe of connectivity to the, a very wide fringe a hem, a garment, which is all the people coming into this place. And they, of course, are the fish that the Lord is going to say, see that one over there? Catch them and bring them in. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. A ministry of word and spirit. So people of God, you've got to move. We're not going to break into this. When the spirit says move, let's move it. Amen. Amen. Amen.